Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today in our third week of Advent. Can you guys believe it? We are 12 days from Christmas. I think there's a song about that. Y'all want me to sing it? No, I won't. I won't do that to you, but I do have something unique I want to do uh, this morning, something we don't normally do, but you know, in order to help us get in the Christmas spirit, I was thinking about, I've spent the last nine years in student ministry, and one of the best parts of student ministry at Christmas is we played a lot of fun Christmas games. So if it's okay with you, we're going to play a little Christmas game this morning to get warmed up. I'm not going to put anybody in the spot, but I simply want to see how well you know the lyrics to some classic, famous Christmas songs, okay? So I'm going to start, and I want you to finish. And if I'm up here singing, that means you can sing too, okay? Deal? Are you ready? Are you ready? We'll see. All right, here's the first one. I'm dreaming. That's pretty good. All right, that's enough. That's enough. Don't Don't get carried away. No, that's good. That was good. That was really good. That was good. Let's do let's try another one. Come they told me. Hey, that was good. All right, we're getting the hang of it. A couple more, a couple more. How about this one? A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Hey, I think we could take this thing on the road. That was pretty good. We got it. All right, one more, one more. <clears throat> With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It... Wow, hey, that was pretty good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Thanks for making me feel like I'm, I'm back in student ministry. A little. Amy, y'all play that game a little bit? No, not that <laughs> Yeah, for good reason. No, um, you know, it, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? That's what they tell us. Christmas is supposed to be happy. It's called Merry Christmas. And our songs reflect that. They're all about lights and love and family. We're all supposed to be happy at Christmas time. Think about it. Even the villains of Christmas, Scrooge and the Grinch, are villains precisely because they're unhappy at Christmas. So come on. Smile for the Christmas card. Go to the parties. Eat the figgy pudding, whatever that is. And just be happy. But what if you're not? What if you don't feel happy at Christmas? Well, hold on right there, preacher man. You better fake it and then act happy so you don't ruin it for the rest of us. But but seriously, what if this Christmas season is not a happy time for some people? For some, this may be their first Christmas away without a loved one that they lost this year. For some, this Christmas might be spent in a nursing home where they're not able to be visited by family. For some, this season may be filled with doctor's visits and chemo treatments. Or for others, this might be a sad time because of past mistakes that have been made that still affect your life today. The truth is, not everyone's life is like a Hallmark movie. (laughs) Some people, even in Christmas season, despite the songs, are feeling the weight. Of sadness. We live in a broken world, and there is no amount of light and glitter that can cover that up. But the sadness we deal with in the world today is not new. 
In fact, the people we read about in the Bible and the nativity story were also dealing with a profound sadness. A sadness that had been building for generations. And yet, that setting is the setting that God chooses to bring Jesus into. Out of that sadness, God brings joy. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue our Advent series. The series is called All Things New. And it's a focus on how God redeems what's been broken for our good and his glory. And we're looking at the traditional Christmas story through a little bit of a different lens. We're focusing on some of the the rougher, darker aspects to the story. Typically, when we think about Christmas, we think about how happy and excited people must have been that baby Jesus was born and angels were singing and shepherds were rejoicing and the cattle were lowing. But in reality... If we look at the background to this story, these characters were facing a history of difficulty and suffering. And by understanding that background, we then come to realize just how significant and powerful the birth of Jesus really was. Jesus didn't step into a winter wonderland or Whoville. He stepped into a dark, broken world. And right in the midst of that sadness, he brought the light and joy of salvation. So let's continue our journey through Matthew's nativity account this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And let's start right there at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Chapter 2 picks up right after the birth of Jesus and how long after is up for some debate. Often we picture the wise men being there at the night of Jesus' birth, but we see here that wasn't exactly the case. The wise men came later, after Jesus was born. Some say months after, some say even years after. So I'm really sorry to ruin your nativity scenes. If you want to go home, just throw away the wise men. No, I'm kidding. But the real question is, I mean, who were these wise men? And why did they travel so far to see Jesus? It's weird. I mean, again, we get so familiar with this story, we think this is all normal. This is not normal. Some mysterious wise men travel all this way to worship a baby? And throughout history, the wise men have kind of taken on a life of their own. Lots has been said and written and even sung about these guys. But the truth is, we don't know a whole lot about them. We've got this picture in our head of three kings dressed in all this royal garb with crowns and treasure chest and chests, and they're riding on camels. But the only thing Matthew tells us is that they were wise men from the east. So again, I hate to burst anyone's Christmas bubble, <laughs> but let's just rip the band-aid off together, okay? The wise men probably weren't kings. Oh, I know, we sang the song, and I thought, man, you know, the, the we three wise men of Orient Art didn't have quite the same ring to it. So they, they probably weren't kings. There was probably more than three, and they probably didn't travel on camels. <laughs> I say probably. We don't know for sure, and I'm sorry if Christmas is ruined. But here's what we do know about these mysterious guys. Number one, they're called wise men. Or the word some of your Bible translations use is that Greek word magi. 
This means they were some sort of religious advisors in their culture, similar to priests. They were religious leaders who were well-versed in things like wisdom and astrology and possibly even magic. We read in the Old Testament about foreign nations that had these sorts of men who advised the king in things like dreams and plagues and mystical events. So, yeah, these were important guys who were pretty wealthy and highly respected in their own nation. Which leads us to number two. We know they were from the east. Most likely this was Persia, which would have been about 900 miles away. So for them to travel all the way to Bethlehem would have taken them several months. Most likely a a big group of people would have had to come along to care for one another and protect each other. This is a huge trip, all to give some gifts to a baby. Why'd they go to all this trouble? Couldn't they have sent a birthday card or started a meal train? (laughs) Well, that leads us to number three. We know these wise men believe Jesus to be a king. Some way, somehow... These men had knowledge of the Old Testament. They knew some of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. How was this possible? Well, once the nation of Israel was conquered, you'll remember, and they were taken off into exile, they they took their beliefs with them. We read in Daniel about Daniel and his friends coming to power and prophesying in Babylon. We know even in the first centuries, a lot of Jews still lived out east and had some influence there. So these guys had been exposed to Old Testament prophecies predicting the coming of Jesus. And lastly, number four thing we know, we know these men were ultimately led to Jesus through a star. This should not surprise us since we already established that these guys most likely studied the stars and found great meaning in them. But it should surprise us that that's the means God used to bring them to Jesus. It would be like someone saying, I came to Blue Valley today by reading my weekly horoscope. I would send them to the Antioch campus. Now, uh, (laughs) In the Old Testament, it, it's, it's weird. In the Old Testament, God actually condemned astrology. Yet, he uses a star to guide the wise men. It's another interesting detail. Was this a real star? Was was an asteroid or some other kind of natural phenomenon? Some people make that argument. Or was it an angel or some other type of heavenly being lighting the way? Some people make that argument. The most likely explanation, I think, based on the text, is that this is a real star, But it's not your everyday star in the sky because this star moves and stops right over where Jesus is located. That means this is some sort of supernatural event that God used to lead the wise men to Jesus. And again, it's strange. But some have made this, this unique connection to a prophecy made by a man in the Old Testament named Balaam. Numbers 24, 17, he said this, A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The wise men may have been aware of this prophecy along with other Old Testament teachings about the Messiah, and they put two and two together, and they were on their way to see this baby who they believed was going to be a very important king. And that's what we know. It's about all we know. And as a Gentile, reading Matthew's account, it would have been so powerful to see that some of the first people to recognize and worship Jesus were not Israelites, but they were people outside of the chosen nation. This would have shown them that Jesus came to save people of all tribes and nations. The gospel is for everyone. But as a Jew, reading about these wise men would have been convicting, maybe even a little embarrassing. 
If anyone should have been bringing gifts to Jesus and worshiping him, it should have been the Jewish leaders of the day. They had access to these same prophecies. They knew them. And rather than 900 miles, they were six miles up the road. Yet they missed it. Look at what happens next in in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Let's talk for a minute here about Herod. When Herod heard about the wise men coming all this way to worship the king of the Jews, he he started to panic a little bit. For one, he considered himself to be the king of the Jews. He had been appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over Israel and keep them in line. And he had done a lot of work to keep the people happy, most notably renovating the temple. So this was his territory. These were his people. He had the power. He was the one sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. He should have been getting the gifts. He should have been getting the worship. But Herod knew he was not the one that the Old Testament prophesied about. So this made him a bit of a paranoid psychopath. (laughs) Seriously. He he was terrified of Rome. He was terrified of the East. He was terrified of even the people in his own household that might try and take his throne. Seriously, he routinely had members of his own family executed, including his own wife and kids. This guy was horrible. We're going to see next week just how diabolical he was. So so when Herod hears about the king of the Jews being born, he gets the religious leaders together for a meeting. And amazingly, they read him the prophecy from Micah 2 that Jesus just fulfilled. Bethlehem was the spot where the birth of the Messiah was going to happen. It's this little insignificant town, but it's where the ruler of Israel was going to be born. So here's what Herod does in in response. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod calls in the wise men. He's trying to figure out you know, where Jesus is, and he, he's trying to trick them. He says, Hey, I want to worship him too. We know that's a lie, because here's what happens next. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. After visiting with Herod, the the wise men finally arrive at their destination. And notice they they find Jesus in a house. This is another reason we believe this was sometime after the nativity, since Jesus wasn't born in a house. And when they see Jesus with Mary, they they fall down and, and worship him. They give him three gifts, which is where the idea comes from that there were three wise men. They give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And some have attempted to connect these three gifts to some sort of symbolic meaning about Jesus. But the bottom line is these were really expensive gifts, super fancy. This is not stuff you would buy for the company Christmas party. This was top-of-the-line stuff, the kind of stuff you would only give to a king. 
As you can imagine how Mary and Joseph, their their new parents, their, their poor newlyweds, how they would have reacted to such a gift. When the wise men get ready to leave, God gives them a dream. He says, hey, I want you to go another way. And he does that to protect Jesus and his family so they have time to escape. And that's it. That's the tale of the traveling wise men. But what exactly does this have to do with sadness and joy? Well, I'm really glad you asked. I actually have it right here. Um, In this passage... What we see is a contrast here between an evil king and a perfect king. The forced king and the chosen king. One king that receives a visit and gifts from foreign nations and one king that receives a request for directions. Matthew is highlighting for us the differences between Herod and Jesus and how one is the continuation of generational sadness and disappointment and the other is the pinnacle of joy and purpose for the world. So in light of this text, God is calling us to do two things. Here's the first. First, God wants us to realize the source of sadness. Realize the source of sadness. Sadness is often the result of one of two things, suffering or sin. And we see both of these things in Israel's history and especially in the kingship of Herod. We've already spent some time in the previous weeks detailing Israel's history and despair and chaos. But I think it's important how we see this theme of kingship, how it relates to their difficult history. I think you can make the argument that Israel's track record with kings is a big part of the reason they had so many problems. Think back with me to 1 Samuel. Right now I'm reading through that book in my devotional time and with my discipleship group. The first Samuel shows us that the nation of Israel was being led by this man named Samuel who was a prophet and priest. And once Samuel got to the end of his life, the people said, hey, we want a king. All these other nations, they got kings. We want to. If you're going to die, we need a king. Seemed like an okay idea, but it wasn't. <laughs> Samuel was called to grant them their request, even though God said, they're not rejecting you, man. They're rejecting me. And the people got a king named King Saul. You probably remember how that turned out. Saul was not a very good king. He disobeyed the Lord and lost God's blessing, which went to David. And things started to look up again because we know David was a man after God's heart. He, he led the people to worship God. But David doesn't end up fitting the bill either as the people God need, as God's people need. He ends up making some serious mistakes and on and on this pattern goes. Each of David's descendants takes the throne and things get progressively worse to the point where the kings begin to lead God's people to worship other gods. And and eventually as a judgment, God's people are taken into exile and then they're ruled by foreign kings, kings who don't care anything about God. While in exile, they get conquered by one kingdom, then another, then another, all the while suffering in a foreign land as exiles. Until eventually they're able to return home to the promised land and they rebuild the temple and again things seem to be looking up. But then here comes the Roman Empire and once again they're conquered and they have a man named Herod who's placed to rule over them. Not the king they wanted, but the king they got. A man who claims the title king of the Jews, but who doesn't even worship the God of the Jews. So again they're being led by a godless king. I mean, do you see this long history of sadness and pain? 
The people of God in the first century, they were well acquainted with this history. They would have felt the weight of it by then. Their sadness is a result of some suffering and some sin. On one hand, it's a result of suffering. There were many in the first century who had nothing to do with worshiping the false idols and calling on Samuel to give them a king. They didn't want Herod to rule over them. Yet, this was the hand they were dealt. In the same way, sometimes the source of sadness in our lives is because of our suffering. We live in a broken, fallen world tainted by sin and evil. There's simply no way around it. To be human is to experience profound suffering and pain from time to time. And sadness is a normal human reaction to that brokenness. To to mourn at a funeral. To cry at a hospital bedside. to, To moan out in physical or emotional pain. To just languish over the injustice in the world. That's a normal response to a fallen world. Did you know God is also said to experience sadness? Jesus cried at the loss of his friend Lazarus. The Holy Spirit is said to be grieved over sin. So sometimes sadness is the result of suffering, things outside our control, things that happen to us. But other times, sadness is the result of sin and our own choices. Israel knew this sadness as well. Even though the first century Jews didn't participate in the horrific acts of their past, their distance from God was passed down and We see this most clearly in the so-called religious leaders of the day. These leaders were chief hypocrites, creating their own laws and rules to lay on the people as a burden to blind them from the truth of God. And ultimately, this is what led them to completely missing the Messiah and nailing him to a cross. It was this sin that propped up leaders like Herod and led to their own misery. See, just like Israel, sometimes our sadness is the result of our sin. None of us are perfect. We we struggle with sin. And at the root of our sin is really a struggle with what's called idolatry. Just like the nation of Israel, we, we kick God off his throne and we demand our own king. The truth is everyone has a king. See, in your heart and in my heart, we all have a throne. And Whatever or whoever sits on that throne in our hearts is our king. It's something or someone that that is the focus of our life, who guides the decisions and and the way we live. And your king could be anything. It could be a person, a career, a hobby, a, a habit. Even good things like family or success or your job can become your king. It's important that we know that none of us are immune from this battle over the king of our hearts. But here's what happens. After a while, we discover that the king we placed on the throne of our hearts is not a good king. When that new king doesn't give us everything we thought it would, we end up with regrets and sadness. Could the sadness and disappointment you experience in life be the result of suffering? Or could it be the result of choices you've made over the course of your life? The honest truth is it's probably both. Bad things happen to us, and yet we also do bad things. That's the source of sadness. It's something that the characters in the story, they knew so well. But here's the good news. This passage doesn't end here. (laughs) Because second, God wants us to see 
and to worship the source of joy. Worship the source of joy. It's right in the midst of this sadness that God brings Jesus into the world and Jesus redeems both sources of sadness, both suffering and sin. He brings joy out of both of them. Check this out. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to bring joy out of the sadness of suffering. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows suffering firsthand because he felt it. Just because he was perfect doesn't mean he couldn't feel pain or, or, or temptation. And In fact, Jesus experienced more pain and suffering than we ever will. And he experienced more temptation than we ever will. And this wasn't by accident. It was by design. Jesus entered into our suffering to bring joy out of it. He was sent to reverse the curse of Genesis 3. And as a result, the Bible says we have been given the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to help us in our time of need. And one day we will live in a perfect place where there will be no more sadness. Because Jesus himself will wipe the tears from your face. And until then... Knowing Jesus and his love can bring us joy in the midst of suffering. We can even get to the point where we rejoice in suffering because it becomes an opportunity to grow our faith and glorify God all the more. Jesus redeems suffering. The scripture tells us that he also came to bring joy out of the sadness of sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I'm the one who sinned. Yet, rather than me experiencing all the sadness and punishment for my sin, Jesus took it instead. On the cross, Jesus took my place so that I could go free. And as the verse says, so that he might bring us to God. And because of Jesus, I get forgiveness. I get new life. I get a relationship with God. What greater joy could there be than that? Like I don't have to mope around or hide or be ashamed because of my sin and my past. No, my sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. I am a child of God. I'm his son, and that's not going to change. See, that is the foundation of our joy in Christ. It's not fake, cheesy, Instagram happiness. No, suffering still exists. The world is still broken. I still mess up. I still sin. But my joy is not based on how life is treating me. My joy is not based on other people's opinions or the stock market or my favorite team's record or who the president is. My joy is not based on my performance. If I'm a good enough person or if I've spent enough time with God this day or how bad I have or haven't sinned. My joy is not based on anything external. It's, if that's where you try to find your joy, you will experience sadness. But if you find your joy in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, then you will have the fullness of joy no matter what may come. Again, it doesn't mean life isn't hard. It doesn't mean we aren't ever sad. But it means that deep down we're not ruined or shaken because Jesus is the source of our joy. Let's worship that source of joy this Christmas season. That's what we need. To worship and to demonstrate that Jesus 
is the source of our joy. Because get this, just like the wise men, we live in a distant land. And sometimes it feels like we are so far from where God is and where he he wants us to be. But even in this messed up world, God has given us a star to point our way to him. He's guiding us through his word, through his church, through his spirit. And along the way, a false king like Herod will try to deceive us. His name is Satan, and scripture says he prowls around like a roaring lion. But we remain steadfast, fixed on our destination to meet the true king. Day by day, we keep moving forward. And one day, we will get there. One day, we will open the door and walk in that home, and we will see Jesus for ourselves. And we, too, will bow down and worship him. And we will finally see Jesus is the true source of joy. So this Advent season, let's let's worship him. Let's make everything we do about him. Let's demonstrate to the world that Jesus is our joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.